Well, we're in a new series today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, so I want you to turn there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They will bring one to you. We've got stacks of them in the back. We want you to have a Bible so that you can be reading it yourself. And uh, if you need one, you can just keep it because we want you to be in God's Word. God's Word brings life. It brings us His thoughts. And uh, we want you to know what God's thoughts are. So there they are. Just raise your hand and they'll bring one your direction. I don't know how you're doing on your coloring. Um, it's kind of cool. We've had some people coloring these already. I think Micah colored his in the middle of the night without turning the light on while they were having nursing the new baby. I'm not sure, but anyway, it's really something. I'm sure that you know, you've had the experience of you're getting ready to go to a wedding or some other big event to celebrate with some friends. And maybe you worked out in the yard in the morning and you played with the kids and you went shopping and you thought about cleaning the garage. You know, you ate lunch, you watched a movie, maybe you even got in a nap. But at some point you left all that behind. Maybe an alarm went off. Maybe somebody nagged you a little bit. Um, uh, you know, maybe you got a wake-up call, but it triggered and you went and you took a shower, you got cleaned up, you put on your cl good clothes, and uh, you collected whoever was going with you and your card and your gift, and uh, you headed out to the big event. And, you know, there's a certain amount of preparation required for you to be able to go to somebody else's party and to celebrate. Now, you probably didn't think about it much, but the person who invited you, who's hosting the event, has probably spent months, maybe even years in preparation, planning the event, setting a budget, picking the venue, talking to caterers, choosing colors and music and musicians, sending out invitations, juggling a myriad of other details so that everything would be exactly right at the moment that you slide into your seat just on time in the church. And they've done a lot of preparation. It's required just a little from you. So we're starting into this series in the book of Matthew, and Matthew is the story of the arrival of Jesus in this world for the big event of becoming the Savior of the world. And Matthew, this book of Matthew really serves as your invitation to be part of the greatest coronation that will ever take place, to recognize Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, when it comes to a new king or a new leader being established, you know, the, the new leader doesn't try to fit in to what he finds when he gets there. Instead, he's, he's not saying, oh, well, how do I slide in and just keep things going as usual? He's got beliefs. He's got convictions. He's got values. And he's going to say, now that I'm in charge, here's what we're going to do. And people all around him have to say, well, what does that mean to me? How do I change my life to fit in with that? Where are my loyalties? Do I support him? What am I going to do? And so in Matthew, and we're going to skip to chapter 3, we'll save chapters 1 and 2 for December when we get to Christmas, so we'll, we'll just come back to it, but we're going to start looking at this story that Matthew lays out. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and um, he's also called Levi, and he probably wasn't the first one who wrote a, a biography of Jesus' life, but it just stood as such an authority of, of such a great transition from the Old Testament way of thinking into the, the new life that there is in Jesus Christ, that from the earliest times, Matthew is just seen as this authoritative gospel, and even though nowhere in it does Matthew himself take credit for writing it, um, he does include a little bit of his own story, which is kind of a dramatic demonstration that this new king is now in charge, and there's a new way he's going to operate. His one little clip about himself is found in Matthew 9, verse 9, and it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, you follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, 
If you were to read this in Greek, we miss this in English, but the word man is actually in the verse. He saw a man. Sometimes in Greek, they just leave it out, and just with the indefinite article, you just kind of know because it also would be uh, singular and uh, male that you'd know he, there is a, and they just fill in the blank. But here, Matthew actually put the word in because he's saying, Jesus actually saw me. He didn't just see a crowd. He didn't just see a lot of people. He, I mean, I would guess a lot of people, as they're walking past where the tax collector is set up to collect taxes on the road, are going to kind of be going like this, don't you think? So they're... You know, going to keep their eyes to themselves, maybe like you did in algebra, so the teacher doesn't call on you. You know, and, and instead, Jesus saw him. And he spoke to him. And he recruited him. Now, if you were recruiting your A-team for a very important work to do for God, would you ask an IRS agent to be on the team? I mean, think about it. It would raise a few eyebrows even in our day, but in Jesus' day, it was even worse. I mean, at the time, the Jewish state is controlled by the Romans, and so to help the Romans keep control of people and to take their money for taxes, I mean, you would, Jewish people who did that were considered traitors. They had sold out. They're a defector. They're a villain. And Jesus comes along and says to Matthew, you follow me. That's new. It's radical. It's high risk. But it tells us something about Jesus, that he's coming and he's calling anyone, everyone. He's inviting people anywhere and everywhere. Break out of the bonds that are holding you back, the bonds of sin and of discrimination and of hatred, and get ready to cheer the new king, the new way. So what did Matthew do? He obeyed, stood up, Left the money piled there on the table, said to his buddies, see you later, I'm leaving, you take shop, I'm not coming back. And he leave, follows Jesus. And then we're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he throws this party at his house to introduce all of his friends to Jesus. And of course, they're all tax collectors too. And so the religious people are watching this, and here's all these people gathering at Matthew's house, and Jesus is there among them, and they're partying away. And the, the, the religious leaders objected. Those are the people we shun. Those are the people we love to hate. And Jesus, you're hanging out with them. You're eating with them. You're drinking with them. And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous people to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He wants them to repent. Repentance means to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your attitude. He's saying to the religious people, you think you've got it all together. I'm not trying to change your mind. You're so convinced you're so right. And your heart is so hard. But if you have a change of heart, a change of mind, it will change your attitude. It will change your behavior. And he's saying, trying to reach those kind of people to say, get ready to live by the values of the new king. And Jesus has done a lot of preparation before this day. And yet there's one little part that he has left undone that he cannot do. And that is, he can't repent for you. He can't humble your heart. He can't force you to say, God, will you please forgive me of my sin and bring me into a right relationship with you? He leaves that to you. Matthew wanted that. He had everything else, but he didn't have have God. He wasn't right with God, and he was hollow inside. He was aching. There was something missing. Matthew finds a new life in Jesus, and so he wants to share it with his closest friends. I, I want that for you, too. 
I, I want you to have this new life in Jesus Christ that fills those gaps inside. It gives you forgiveness of anything you've ever done wrong, and it gives you purpose for today and a home in heaven. And I also want you to do what Matthew did, to reach out to your family and friends and say, you got to share this. i got to share what I've got with you. But I, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let, let me get back to the big idea for today is that God has been getting ready since the beginning of time for Jesus to enter the world and to atone for the sin of every man, woman, and child by his sacrificial death on the cross. God chose the time. He chose the place. He made all the arrangements. He paid all the price. And now he's sending out invitations for people to join him in this adventure. God eagerly invites people to prepare for Christ, the coming king. Start with repentance. It's how you get in the game. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is help to reconcile God with man, holy God with sinners. Now, let's get then into Matthew chapter 3. I'm working my way that direction. Back in, in the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Elijah. He just shows up. He's bold for God. He didn't mess around. He didn't have any social graces, but he called sin, sin. He had never been to Dale Carnegie's class on how to win friends and influence people. He would just come in and tell the truth like it was. Bold and bald as it, uh, as it was, just kind of lay it out there. He would call people to repent. Now, clearly God's power was in him and God's blessing was on him. In fact, he went to the king at God's command and said, King, because of your wickedness, it's not going to rain. Turn around, ran away. Didn't rain for a year, for two, for three. People are starving for another half a year. Then he shows up and has this dramatic meeting showing, proving that God is more powerful because he can light the sacrifice on fire. You know, he, while he was hiding, he was staying at a widow's house and her son died. And he prayed for the boy and he came back from the dead. He was also, another time he was walking along a, a body of water he needed to cross, so he took out a, his robe and he smacked uh, uh, the, the water and it opened up just like Moses did. And he and those with him parted on dry ground, walked through with a, on a path of dry ground. Now there is a prophecy in the Bible that before the Messiah would arrive, which the, 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 the prayer for a Messiah goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. From that chapter forwards, God began to promise, I'm going to send a Messiah, I'm going to send a Messiah. And he started to give little clues. And there are people in that day and probably still today who wonder, how are things going to conclude? How's it going to end? Where are the clues? And some people spend a lot of time looking at their Bible, looking at their newspaper, saying, how do these fit together? What's going to happen? So there's this prophecy that before the Messiah is going to arrive in the world, there will be a prophet who comes with, quote, the spirit and power of Elijah, who will arrive and prepare the way. Now, God always keeps his word, and he's never late. But that promise was given at a very dark and dismal time, and people hung on to it. Elijah is going to return. And then we'll know the Messiah is eminent. Someone clearly covered with God's blessing, coming and calling sin, sin, boldly, calling people to repent. Now, that promise is given in the last book in the Old Testament, in the last chapter of that book, in the last verse of the last chapter of that book. It's the last thing said in the Old Testament. Here it is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. 
And so they hung on to this promise. There's this little flicker of hope. But a year went by, and two, and five, and ten, and no Elijah, and twenty, and thirty, and fifty, and no Elijah. On a hundred, now nobody even was alive who remembered it. They just read it. And then 200 and 300, 400 years. That's a lot longer than our country has even been in existence. Would you still trust God? Would you still believe his promise? God always keeps his word. He's never late. And God finally sends this prophet into the world. The backstory is pretty fascinating, but we don't have time really to look at it today. It's in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this little old couple. He's a priest named Zechariah. Her name's Elizabeth. They've prayed for decades to have a baby and never did. Their hearts have been broken. And finally one day, Zechariah goes to the temple in Jerusalem to sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And an angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard. He's in there praying for the sin of the people and atoning for them, which was a great honor on his behalf. And the angel says, your prayer has been heard, and then says, your wife's going to have a son. And Zechariah, who has given up on praying, probably has given up on God, says, yeah, how do we know? And the angel was not sympathetic to the fact that his heart has been anguished. The angel said, you know what? You don't believe it. Don't even talk about it until after it's happened and zipped his lip. And Zechariah was not able to speak until after his son was born. Now, we don't know about John's upbringing. He was probably raised by these two older parents who looked like his grandparents, and uh, they probably died when he was young. And I think he spent time in the Essene community down uh, where the Qumran scrolls were found along the Dead Sea. It was an austere life, and it centered around the Scriptures. And when he did show up, he was wearing funny clothing, and he lacked social graces. And they tried to silence him, but he was powered by God's Spirit. And the people began to hear the message and respond and to tell their friends. And people went out to the desert to hear him. Now, there's this phenomenal guy that's speaking out at Desert Hot Springs this afternoon. You want to go hear him with me? You'll have to miss football. You see what I'm saying? If it was something that you'd drop everything else you're doing to go hear the guy out in the middle of the desert where it's inconvenient, there must be something in it. But people were drawn to it. They heard God's word, and then they repented and responded, and they were baptized. And I think God sat up in heaven watching his plan for the world unfold, and, and right on schedule, by the way, and I'm guessing he smiled. So here you have Matthew who wrote this book who hears Jesus say, come follow me. And he's surrounded, and he does, and he surrounds himself with his family and his friends and he has Jesus come and meet all of them. And he has a home. And then you have John the Baptist who had none of those things. He is like a stick of hardwood that's been cut off of a tree and then carved and smoothed until it's straight and then you put an arrowhead on it and you use it to hit the target. He's like an arrow sent on a mission with no frills. It's not, you, you know, if you're making an arrow, you can't leave one little twig out here with one cute little flower and say, oh, there. No, all that's trimmed away. Now, if that was God's plan for your life, would you still say yes? I hope so, because you'd be right in the center of God's will. And that's what John did with his entire life to say, uh, I have come to give a message. And it didn't matter what he looks like, what he sounded like. He just had to sound the trumpet. Repent and get ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready to meet God is what he's saying. He's the promised prophet. He's announcing the Messiah. He's stepping onto the stage of history at just the right time. And nobody knew who he was, not even John. 
John even got questioned by the authorities. It's recorded in John chapter 1. It says, they came and they said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. He said, are you Elijah? Referencing the verse we just read. He says, no. He says, are you the prophet? There was the one who's to come to announce. He says, no. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He didn't even, in his own understanding of these scriptures, he didn't even understand, even though later Jesus said, and Matthew said, he is that prophet. He is that Elijah who was to come. He became known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because he's calling people to repent, get right with God, and people are flocking to the wilderness to hear him and to respond to God's invitation. Look at verse 1 then. We finally got there. Verse 1, Matthew 3. In those days, the days of Jesus, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That happens to be, by the way, the very same message that Jesus started his ministry with. And then Matthew gives us his commentary, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now for you Bible scholars, this is kind of fun because this is translated out of the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew. Hebrew didn't have any punctuation marks like commas or, or quotation marks. In fact, Hebrew doesn't even have any vowels originally. It just had the consonants and you figure out. And so it's a little harder to, to decipher. So this verse, I think, could be translated two different ways. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Or the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Is the person in the wilderness crying, prepare the way? Or are they saying God is preparing his way in the wilderness? God uses the wilderness all the way through the Bible as a place where you get right down to basics. And survival is something you think about every day. You and I don't think about that very often. But God used it. I think that's even why the Essenes moved to the wilderness because they said that's where the Lord's going to show up. Preparing in the wilderness. So John references this. And if you read it in Isaiah 40, it's, it goes on to say, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you ever lived where you only had dirt roads and then you have weather and then you have big vehicles that go on those roads, they get ruts. And, and this is saying if you're having an important person like a king or somebody come to town, you're going to spend time in preparation. You're going to get out there. You're going to repair the road, take the rocks out, get things smoothed out, straighten the road if you can, get everything done in advance. And on the expected day, you get yourself cleaned up, you get your best clothes on, and you get ready to receive the king. It's kind of like when a city or a country is preparing to host the Olympics. John is saying, do the same with your heart. Somebody is important is coming cl close by you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get your heart ready to be a place for God to live. So he's speaking to us. Now the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonyms. In fact, Matthew's the only one who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He uses it 33 times, but he, he's meaning, and sometimes he says the kingdom of God. He's saying God is near you. He's about to arrive in your town. He's about to arrive in your space. Repent, turn from sin. John has this burning sincerity. He's white hot against sin, and his preaching pierces the hearts of the people. They know he's right. They want to be right with God. Now, most of 
John's audience would have been Jewish people, people who have a temple that they go to three times a year, whether they need to or not. They bring sacrifices, and all the males would have been circumcised when they were eight days old to follow the law. And John is saying to these people who are convinced, we've got the law, we've done the circumcision, we've done everything according to the book. He's telling them it's radical. That's not enough. It's not enough to go through all the motions, but not to give God your heart. These people are searching for the truth because they have everything else, but their hearts are hollow because God is not living in them. And John's saying to them, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Look at verse 4. It says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, which is kind of a parallel to what Elijah is noted as wearing in the Old Testament. His food was locusts and wild honey. John dressed funny. I think that's probably why it got noted here. It's unusual. And he, he ate what he could find to eat in the wilderness, and he wasn't picky, but he wasn't begging. And he didn't compromise the message of God's word to appease the people who were listening. Now, compare that to you and me. How, how much of your last week was consumed with what you eat or preparing to eat or cleaning up from what you eat or what you wear or preparing to wear or going shopping because there's nothing to wear in your closet full. You know, I mean, John didn't care about any of that. He's got this burning message from God to deliver. And so at some point he began to preach and the spread, word spread and people began to say, there's something happening out there. Maybe God's in it. Let's go hear him. And they would leave their work and their homes and their families and they would go out to the desert to hear what John had to say and to see what was all about and it must have been pretty spectacular work of God that so many people got motivated they would leave everything they would go hear God's word and they would repent and they would believe and then they would be baptized to say look at it's happening to me I'm repenting I want my heart clean and ready for God to live in me we had a beach baptism a few years ago it was kind of a blessing there was a a single mom that brought her teenager here to church to get some religion that's what she said she didn't know anything about Jesus. She just wanted him to get some religion. Well, he did. He, he, he learned about the Lord. He, he asked Jesus to be his Savior and to re, uh, forgive his sin and to come into his life. And we had this beach baptism, and he was going to be baptized, and she was there to cheer it on. In the process, she had been here at church, and she had been spending time with somebody reading the Scriptures and had come to the point of realizing that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament uh, prophecies about the Messiah, that Jesus is God in human flesh. And she's watching her son about to be baptized, but right ahead of them is this little family of four that all went in the water together and all were baptized. And so as she's watching her son go into the water to be baptized, she says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's all by himself. They were a family. I love Jesus. And she took everything out of her pockets. With no more preparation than that, she walked down into the ocean and she said, baptize me too. I love Jesus. And that's where it starts, by repenting, opening your heart to say, God, what do you want to do in me? They were baptized together that day. I would guess that John's preaching had a pretty direct approach. God is near. Prepare to meet him. Prepare to meet God. Now, imagine you're sitting on your front porch and somebody running down the street says, prepare the way, the Lord is near. And you know he's going to be coming right down your street. And you can see the street from your porch where you're sitting. And you can see the sidewalk. And between you and the street is a fence. And in the fence is a gate. And it's closed. And inside the gate is your yard. And there's a walkway. But the path is strewn with bicycles and kids' toys. And there's a gate to, to get onto your porch. And you haven't quite finished your yard work. So there's yard tools sitting out there across the path. And you hear somebody say, prepare the way of the Lord. 
All that stuff is your stuff that's in the way. Do you see? He's going to walk right down your street. You need to get the clutter out of the way and prepare to say, come on in, Lord. That's what they're saying. Get ready. That's what they were doing. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Repentance gives hope to sinners who are preparing for the coming kingdom. Without repenting, you have no hope. Without repenting, you're like one of those uh, religious leaders that didn't come to hear to repent. They came to hear to critique the speaker. So John is in the Jordan River, and he's inviting people down into the water, which is, is a, a symbol. It's a picture of, I died to myself. I'm raised to walk in a new life with Christ. But it can be kind of embarrassing and revealing, and it doesn't leave your hair or your makeup the way you worked on it so hard to get everything exactly right. And, uh, you know, he's asking people to renounce their sin and repent, and then he dunks them under the water. Now, that's a moment that you never forget. And then later when the doubter comes along to tempt you, you you didn't really make any decision, did you? You didn't really do anything silly out there, did you? You're able to say, no, 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 I know, because I was baptized in front of other people. It's a point of demarcation. Here's who I was before that. Here's who I am now in Jesus Christ. And so it's easy to remember. Either you did be baptized or you did not be baptized. See, baptism is God's idea. It's not man's idea. And God sent John to baptize, and then Jesus and his disciples picked it up. In John 4, it talks about them baptizing. They continued the practice, and before Jesus left the earth, his parting words were, which are recorded in the last few verses of the whole book of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the early church picked up that practice and began, continued to baptize people, baptizing them to repent from sin, which was John was doing. But now because of Jesus, they, were, were, they died to their sin, but they were raised to walk a new life with Christ. And they were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is this little drama. It says, I renounce my sin. I repent. I die to myself. I'm buried in the water. And then I'm raised to walk this new life with Christ. So baptism, baptism is the sign of belonging to the people of God. Now, all the way through the New Testament, everybody who believed was baptized except one guy. Anybody know who it was? There's one guy we know for sure is going to be in heaven and won't have been baptized. The thief on the cross, right? He's hanging there next to Jesus. He's played all his options. There's no way to get loose. He's going to die hanging there. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's the only one we know of that didn't go through this little picture of I died to myself and my sin, so I am baptized it's all the way through the, the New Testament. It's an outward sign of an inward commitment that says I've repented of my sin and I've asked Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. Now before that, circumcision had been the sign of the Jewish covenant with God. But circumcision, if you're circumcising a baby who's eight days old, the parents are making the choice for the child. The baptism of John was a demonstration of obedience and repentance before God. A person would choose for himself or herself. I need to repent of my sin. I am grieved because of my brokenness. I'm asking to be baptized to say, I want to be right with God. I think parents who have had their children baptized are doing so out of a heart that says, I want my child to be right with God. 
And I certainly want my children to be right with God, my grandchildren to be right with God. But I think a picture, it's a better picture when a person chooses for themselves. Because repentance and salvation aren't group activities. There's something you take care of just between you and the Lord. There's something that only you can do for you. God has given you free choice. He will not take it away from you. He doesn't force you, and God doesn't have any grandchildren. So this call by John to righteousness and repentance was not received well by the religious establishment. They're threatened by this outside voice of this prophet who hadn't come through the temple priest route. Now, this will be one of the things I want to study when we get to heaven because if the, uh, a uh, a prophet has not shown up for 400 years and suddenly one priest is in the temple and an angel visits him and he leaves there transformed, not able to speak, but he wants to communicate. I saw a vision who said, I'm going to, my wife and I are going to have a baby and their grandparent age and not able to have children and they have a miracle baby. And you knew that story. Wouldn't you watch that family just to say, I'm going to watch and see what happens. So 30 years later, some of the people who were there when John was born might have been around when this event happened, when he started to preach and call people to repentance. But somehow he doesn't come through the temple even though he had the lineage, he had the qualifications. Look at verse 7. But when he saw, so here he's preaching, crowds are coming out. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, those were leadership types. They, had, they were learned people, and uh, they were not coming out to repent. He saw them coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, which the word brood could also be translated, you offspring of vipers, and vipers are shrewd, and you, uh, they're a danger to others. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That God's wrath is coming on all those who are unbelieving. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, in Aramaic, there's a play on the words children and stones because they sound a lot alike. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So these learned leaders, they came out really as antagonists. They want to associate with John, but they don't want to repent. They're not listening to ask, what is God trying to tell me? How do I change my life to get in line with the new coming order, the new king who's, uh, who's going to be arriving? They're asking, who does John think he is? Where did he get his information? Why does he have the guts to talk like that? And actually what John is saying is radical. He's saying your circumcision won't save you. He's saying you think you're right with God because you're ethnically special people. It's not enough. It's not enough. You not only have to be circumcised in body, you need to give God your heart. Your ancestry won't save you. You need to repent of your own sin and get your heart right with God. You need to rely completely on the mercy of God and not on your heritage. And the true people of God respond in faith and in repentance, and they come to God one at a time. They repent and ask God for mercy. So John asked his critics, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because he's saying the wrath is real. God's wrath is real. It's coming to anybody who does not repent. Then they are standing before God to account for their sin by themselves. 
There'll be nowhere to hide. It won't be, oh, I grew up in the right family, or oh, my mom went to church, or I thought getting circumcised took care of that. No, there is a new king coming, and he's not left us in the dark about his expectations. He wants a personal, significant, real relationship with you. Nothing else will suffice. So repentance neglected is judgment for the self-righteous in the coming kingdom. John goes on, and we don't really have time to look at it, but you can read it later, of his baptism, which is of water, and Jesus' baptism, which is of the Holy Spirit and of fire. That his baptism brings us to repentance. Remember the people that he's preaching to don't even know the name of Jesus. They don't have what you and I have. They don't know that Jesus was coming into the world to save sinners. They didn't know that he died on the cross to forgive sin. That They didn't know that Jesus was really God or that he was king of kings. They didn't know he rose from the dead. They didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. None of that had happened yet. They were only devoting themselves to saying, I want to ask God for his forgiveness because I know that I need it. Now we can do the same. Because Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit, when we ask him to come in, his Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And he's like a fire. He doesn't just sit still. He transforms our hearts to be a home for God. So you're being invited to the coronation of the greatest king to ever live. He died so that you could live life to its fullest. And he's taken care of all the details that he can. He's paid the whole price. He's invited you to the party. And there's only one thing that you can do. There's only one right thing you can do, and that's don't stay in neutral because not to decide is to decide. Instead, repent. Do your little part of preparation. Turn to Jesus. Shall we pray? Jesus, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. Thank you for John and how he was willing to live this out. Thank you for the picture even in the stained glass window of John bringing Jesus into the water to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Thank you for your plan working in our lives. Now, right now, touch hearts who need to come and to ask you to forgive them and to get right with God. Amen.